Welcome to Podcast, the show that puts the positive in podcasting. Our program is created by and for people living with HIV, and we're here to explore HIV research in ways that matter. We're accurate, but not clinical. We want to hear and tell stories about what new research means for us, for our health, our love lives, and our relationships. We're based in Toronto, but global in outlook, and we're produced at the Centre for Urban Health Solutions of St. Michael's Hospital by Universities Without Walls. We're podcast, and we're bringing HIV research to life. Today, you'll hear the views and ideas of our podcast guests, and while we respect their expertise, they do not reflect the views of St. Michael's Hospital or Universities Without Walls. I'm your host, James Watson, a person living with HIV and a community-based research coordinator. I'll be your guide for today's journey into HIV research. It's not often you get to speak from the heart and say what's really on your mind at work. But here at Podcast, I get to do just that. I'm allowed to reflect on important issues and learn along with everyone else from some extraordinary people. And all the podcasts mean a lot to me, but some strike a more personal chord. And this is one of those topics. The harmful use of crystal meth is taking a heck of a toll on our gay brothers, folks, especially our gay HIV positive brothers. Anyone who knows me knows I'm drug positive. I've had my own experiences with substances and been close enough to this issue to be forever impacted. Meth can be like a rocket ship to gay sex paradise, at least at first, I get that. But it's often a one-way trip, and the landing is rough and the long-term consequences can be devastating. But that's not everyone's experience, right? Some people seem to manage their meth use in ways that works for them, and that's okay. But meth is a tricky one. It's insidious and it creeps up on you. Meth distorts our sexual desire and plays off so many of our vulnerabilities as gay men. When a friend of mine heard I was doing research for this show, he asked me for some advice on how to approach a loved one he was concerned about. He wasn't sure what to do or say, and, and I think there are lots of people who have been or are in similar situations, including myself. I've struggled not knowing how to reach out, or even if I should reach out. While most gay men don't use meth, there's an incredible amount of stigma cast on those that do. And from our own community. It's, well, it's shameful. And it makes it so much harder for those seeking recovery to come forward. We don't want people to isolate further. We want people to know that they're loved and supported and that there's a way out. If out is what they want. Addiction is a disease, friends. It's not a moral failing. It became clear to me quickly that I couldn't do this topic justice in a single 20-minute episode. There's just too much to talk about. So we decided to do a three-part series to get a bigger picture and focus on solutions. In part one, we discussed the book Lust, Men and Meth, A Gay Man's Guide to Sex and Recovery by David Fawcett. And in part two, we get up close and personal with Crystal Meth Anonymous, the 12-step recovery program. And in part three, we explore how methamphetamine fits within a harm reduction model. For this second episode of the series on meth use and gay men, I turn to a friend of mine 
who survived six years of hard meth use and has now been sober for five and a half years from all substances. He found sobriety in the fellowships of the 12-step program, specifically Crystal Meth Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous, and today is very active in his home AA group. He works daily and with fellow recovering addicts as a sponsor and supporting them in their walk through the 12 steps, just as he was supported and still is by his own sponsor. The 12-step program is not the only road to recovery, of course, but it's been so successful for so many people, it's a route well worth exploring. I respect my friend's choice to remain anonymous in this interview. So excited to have you on the show. Thank you for, for coming. Welcome to podcast. Thank you very much. I'm very um, excited. We have known each other for, and been friends for, for quite some time. Long time. Um, and I remember uh, speaking with you during the time you were using meth and thinking that you seemed to really understand quite clearly the hold that the drug had over you and the toll it was taking. Mm-hmm. And you told me straight up that you would stop using only when you hit bottom. Mm-hmm. And you hadn't hit bottom yet. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you can explain to, to me and to the audience what, what bottom looked like for you. Sure. Um, one of the things about that conversation, um, I know because I have some previous experience in the program with recovery that uh, it's, it's a, uh, an, an accepted thing that someone who is involved in, in drug addiction or alcoholism, it's an accepted thing in, in, in the recovery circles that I've always been in, uh, that people usually don't try to make a change in their life until things fall apart, which is the bottom out experience or the, uh, the change, you know, the change experience. Mine, uh, I actually had a few in my life. I had three big ones, all of which resulted in, um, a certain amount of non-drug use. But, you know, today I'm sitting here with five and a half years of sobriety. I've, um, of, uh, a clean time under my belt. And so when I look back at the other previous two, um, there's a, 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 a huge qualitative difference uh, than now, than them, then. So I would have to say that the, the third time I hit bottom was truly the bottoming out experience that we talked about in that conversation. And what it was, was um, I had had uh, the, the second psychotic break that I'd had while I was using. I had two during my years of using. Um, and uh, it scared the crap out of me. Absolutely terrified me. And my best friend was present at the time as well, and it scared him, which actually made it even harder on me, um, seeing how he reacted to it. And uh, the the psychotic break, um, which in in meth using circles is unfortunately not an uncommon thing to talk about because mm-hmm. people have experienced it before. My experience of of it both times was uh, I consciously. Um, I wasn't aware of what was going on. Uh, I was functioning in the world. I was in my home the first psychotic break. Apparently, I let a handyman in who came in and did some some work in my apartment because when I came out of my, guess you could term it a blackout, but it was, I mean, I've never had an alcoholic blackout, so I don't know how they compare. Right. Um, but I was functioning enough to let somebody into my apartment and explain to them what I wanted done. So, wow. <laughs> right. And the second psychotic break I had... Um, like I said, my best friend was present, uh, my best friend at the time, and he was a using buddy of mine as well. Um, I remember that I uh, woke up, I mean, woke up, quote unquote, because <laughs> I never really was asleep. I just was checked out. I didn't, right. you know, I was, the second one, I was vaguely aware snippets of memory of what was going on. 
until I came fully conscious. I was sitting in the bathtub in the bed in the bathroom uh, with the light off, giggling hysterically. And I have a memory of uh, a vision of the universe breaking down into its component parts. And the component parts, when they got small enough, were all me. Okay. okay. <laughs> Which anybody in uh, 12-step rooms would have a field day with, because one of the things we talk about is that we have huge egos. So there right. you are. <laughs> right. So I came out of that and uh, went into one of the bedrooms in the apartment I, I had at the time. And my best friend was in there and he had some things that he was storing at my place. And he was busily packing them all up. And he looked at me with this terrified look on his face that I'd never seen before. And he said, I don't know what has been going on with you for the last 24 hours, but I need to go. Mm. And it scared me because I've never seen that look on his face and I haven't since. So that was a change moment for you. Absolutely change moment, big time. Yeah. And I, But I didn't realize that. Uh, it scared me enough. So over the next few days, I just kind of hunkered down in my apartment, not sure what to do. Too terrified to get online and hook up, too terrified to use again, too terrified to kind of do anything. And then within an, a week or two, I, I think it was like a week maybe, that that best friend also had a psychotic break, which went on for longer than mine, and it was it was far more severe than mine, which scared me even more than mine did. So what path did you end up following uh, for long-term recovery? Um, I went into the 12-step program, and uh, the interesting thing is I had been in the program a um, number of years before when my father had bought him with alcoholism in, in the late 80s. So I'd been in Alateen and then Al-Anon. So I, I had some knowledge of, of the program. Um, it wasn't intentional. Um, my That best friend again one day said, somebody that we both knew, he said he wants to stop using and he doesn't know how. So I've said to him that I would take him. He, he said to his to our friend, I'll, I'll take you to a Crystal Meth Anonymous meeting. And I said, oh, well, I've got experience in 12-step program. I'll come along and give him some support. So I went to a meeting in, uh, it was sometime in, I think, the fall of 2013, and uh, with these two people, and it was about halfway through the hour-long meeting that I realized that I was back. And it, it surprised me. I was not expecting that. Uh, I realized that Christmas Anonymous, which at the time in Toronto only had one group, needed people to be there, needed people to support it, needed people to be active, and, and, and our, the gay community in Toronto needs meth users who are sober, needs meth users who are staying clean, Right. And I needed to, I needed to join that. Right. I, I needed to lend my, my story to that. And so I ended up starting back with the 12 step program. I was kind of more shocked than anybody else, I think. <laughs> and grateful too. <laughs> so can you explain like the basic premise behind a 12 step program like Crystal Meth? Anonymous? Absolutely. Yeah, sure. So all the 12 step programs are based on the original one, which is Alcoholics Anonymous, started by uh, Bill W. and, and Dr. Bob. Uh, I'm not going to give you a date because I'll probably give you the wrong one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, but, you know, before 1950, 1930 or 40 or something like that, in th those years. Um, the CMA is a relatively new program in the panoply of 12-step of programs because um, meth is relatively new on the scene compared to, um, in, in our, compared to alcohol, absolutely. But in our community, even compared to like cocaine and gambling or whatever, right? So they're all based on the same premise, the 12 steps, 12 traditions, and, and the literature is very similar. The... Um, the, the basis of the program is one addict helping another or one alcoholic helping the other, depending on what program you're in. So it's a peer-to-peer -peer program. There's no top-down um, kind of thing. Strictly speaking, according to the literature, it's one addict helping another walk through the 12 steps. Literally, the first step says, admitted we were powerless over crystal meth and our lives have become unmanageable. And that's the only step they say in the program that we have to take 100%. We have to be completely committed to that. And we are if we've stopped using. It's like, right. okay, definitely. I mean, you know... 
anybody out there who has ever done anything addictive knows we don't do it because it doesn't feel good. Right. I mean, we do it because it feels good. Or else we wouldn't do it a second time. Right. The second and third step talk about having a sense of something larger than yourself to create a foundation for what comes next. In the program, it's ta- they talk about God, but it's, it's a spiritual program, not a religious one. So um, they talk about uh, the God of your understanding. Step three says, uh, turned our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood God. And um, so I love some of the acronyms that we use in the program right. for God, which is like a good orderly direction. So some people like to, you know, focus on spiritual truths, universal truths. Uh, my favorite is group of drunks. <laughs> <laughs> so people who want to uh, use the program as their um, right. as their higher power. And right. then steps four through nine. Because I can imagine God would send some people running. Right? Oh, I mean, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And I mean, the God thing is, is, is in, especially in our community, is, is one that gets in the way of so much. As a sponsor, what I try to do to people, what do to people, what, what I try to do with people and help them is, to, is I listen, I, understand, I, I, I empathize and, and as much as I can. Uh, and then I say, I, I, like, for instance, if they're resisting the God concept, um, I listen to what they're saying. I validate it because there's a lot of reason to have trouble with God in our society nowadays. And then I say... I want you to do it anyway. So, for instance, when you come in the rooms, when a person comes in the rooms, we're told to um, go to meetings, get a sponsor, work the steps, do service work, pray and meditate. So those are the five things we're told to do. And so when it comes to the pray and meditate and a person says to me, I don't believe in God, I say, that's okay, do it anyway. They say, but I don't know who I'm praying to. I said, I didn't ask you to know who you're praying to. I said, pray. Right. You know, and it's like, if you want to pray to the, the group, that's fine. Group you know? drugs. Exactly. Right. You know? And the reason I do that is, is not because I think one should believe in God. I don't really care, quite frankly. I just know that my experience and the experience of, of, I don't know how many people, tens of millions since AA first started, this has worked for them. Right. When we come to f- steps four through nine in the program, those are the action steps where we do the actual work of trying to, of clearing up the wreckage of our past, as they call it. And uh, it starts with a personal looking at, at our own stuff and sharing it with a trusted uh, confidant. And then it, it, we, we transition over the next few steps into looking at relationships that we've had over the past and how to, um, how to like uh, heal right. um, a lot of that. Not necessarily heal the relationship with the other person, because sometimes that's dangerous, but to heal whatever it is that inside of us that's holding us back. And then the last three steps, 10 through 12, are about daily maintenance and then spreading it with others. And, and the key for me, m- most important thing about my, my program I have to work with other addicts. Absolutely have to work with other addicts. I have phone calls every morning from people that I sponsor. And it is the the thing that keeps me sober more than anything else is uh, helping somebody else with the uh, the knowledge and the experience that I've gained from the program. Okay, interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. Yeah. It's a lot of work. Yeah. It's a lot of work. And there was a time when I was younger in Alateen Al-Anon when I thought, ugh, I have to go to meetings <laughs> right, right. today though. I, I think it's because th- there's, I've often heard it said a hundred percent commitment is a cinch. 99% commitment is a bitch. And when I was younger, I had 99% commitment right. and that 1% bit me in the ass all the time. <laughs> but today I have a hundred percent commitment to my recovery and my spiritual journey. And it makes it easy for me. I want to go to these meetings. I, I'm, I, I do service work in, at my home group. I picked up a service position just recently, which I'm going to have for four years. I have it for two years. And then I, I go up to the, to another position. So I've committed myself for four years of service to my group. 
I chair meetings, I sponsor, I am a sponsee. I I call my sponsor every day. Wow. So I was about to ask you what inspires you the most about My sponsees, so that's a word that isn't common in in, uh, society. Sponsored, people understand, but the one who is sponsored, I don't know if this is a 12-step thing or not, but the one who is sponsored is a sponsee. And my sponsees, getting phone calls from people right before they're making a huge mistake, and then they call me, It, 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 it brings me to tears more often than not because I think to myself, what? This is where my gay is going to show. I think of the sound of music and I, I think to myself, <laughs> I must have had a wicked childhood, but at some point I must have done something good because here I am, you know, supporting people in, 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 we're saving lives. Right. We're saving lives. That's fantastic. Yeah. So if, if someone was, is listening right now um, and who is currently struggling with an addiction to meth, I'm looking to stop. What is the one piece of advice you would give Mm. them? One of the biggest problems that I've seen around addiction in our culture right now is this. um, It seems generally our society has an attitude that the problem is the addict or that the problem is the, uh, the, the drug. And something that we need to remember is that those of us who are addicts, we became addicts because we were looking for an answer. And we found one that worked the first time, probably the second time, maybe the third time. By the fourth time, it stopped working, but by then it was too late because the substances take over and you become addicted. So we're not addicts because we're morally deficient. We're addicts because we have what the 12-step program says. We're addicts because we have a disease, a disease of the spirit. So it needs a cure of the spirit. Something that I've learned in the program is that my disease, my addiction is way bigger than I am. So I need something way bigger than I am to help me stay sober and to recover. So my 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 thing to, to, to everybody that is listening to this is, uh, forgive the, um, the sound bite, but get off your back and get on your team. This is not your fault. This is not your fault. Doesn't matter what society or anybody tells you. But it is your responsibility. Everything you've done, everything you choose to do, and your recovery is all your responsibility. Nobody else is going to do it. Nobody's going to fix the wreckage of your past. You have to do that. But it's not your fault. Right. Very important distinction between the two. Thanks, James. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. I can't thank you enough for sharing your personal story of addiction and recovery. You're an inspiration. Thank you for doing the thoughtful and hard work that you do and for continuing to help others find their way. Your message is clear. It's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. Thanks for listening. Production services are provided by the Ontario HIV Treatment Network.